I just want to set the record straight as we begin this morning that if you have this sense of deja vu as I begin to speak, I want to ensure you that that is real. The topic of prayer came about about a year ago from this very same passage, but I'm trusting this morning you'll do as I did this past week. I approached the passage from a fresh point of view in the sense that I didn't look at last year's study notes, I didn't look at last year's sermon. Uh, until I had begun to write and wanted to clarify some things. Um, I just wanted to see where my approach would go. Being steeped and soaked in the context of the prayer as we've studied Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, together. So I trust that you also approach it that way, fresh this morning. Our context remains the same, though. Our context, uh, we're still sitting, metaphorically, on the side of a mountain, not too far from Capernaum, listening to Jesus preach. With us, the twelve apostles, those who had committed themselves as disciples so far to follow Christ, so there was a few more than just the twelve that were believers now, and looking on were the curious and the religious elite who really hated Christ. Our text this morning can be found in the middle of the warnings concerning religious hypocrisy. But unlike last week, hypocrisy is not at center stage here. Rather, the being a hypocrite in hypocrisy is the context to which we find the Lord's Prayer. You may recall outside the Lord's Prayer, a hypocrite was someone who was associated with being an actor in a play, pretending to be something that they are not. And in the New Testament, when we look at that word hypocrite, it takes on a much harsher tone, implying a hardness of heart, lacking a genuine spirit, uh, an attitude of arrogancy, devoid of sincerity. D.A. Carson, in his book on the Gospel of Matthew, clearly states the transition from where we were to where we're going in this little aside by contrast with ostentatious prayer, verses 5 and 6, babbling, or thoughtless prayer, verses 7 and 8, vain repetition, Jesus gives his disciples a model. And verse 9 begins like this, pray then like this. Christ is giving us a pattern for a prayer, not a prayer to recite. For if, if it was a prayer to recite, we would be in danger of falling into what verse 7 warns us about. You recall in verse 7, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again and again. Now, that no way precludes the fact that we can't use the Lord's Prayer when appropriate. But it's not the prayer we go to and just repeat, thinking we've got some sort of magical formula. Before we break down the prayer, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to gather together as a family. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew all that we have studied together and all that is in there for us to learn from. We thank you that your spirit works in our lives and helps us take the scripture 
and apply them to our daily walk. We thank you that we can be a light to the world around us of your love and your desire to be in relationship with people. So this morning, as we take time again to focus on your word, help us to push the thoughts that have crowded us out as we think of the week to come and we think of the week to pass, just to take this time to focus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The prayer itself is rather brief, and it breaks down to two parts. There's an invocation, that idea of calling on God, and then there are six petitions. The first three petitions that we find all reference God. The last three reference ourselves. And this is how we're going to break down the sermon this morning. First, let's read the prayer itself. Now, if you're reading along with me and you have a King James The prayer in the King James concludes with the doxology. If you have a new King James with you, there's going to be a notation about that doxology. The manuscripts that we have today that are considered some of the best available to us do not include the doxology. So I actually believe that doxology was added sometime in the first half of the second century. The doxology reads like this, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Or something similar to that, depending on your translation. If you're over 45, you probably have that memorized with the Lord's Prayer, simply because you said it every morning at school. But by the time 1901 rolled around, and they did the American Standard Version, which is based off another version, which is based off what the King James come from, that doxology had been omitted. So we're not going to talk about it this morning. It's a beautiful piece of poetry, but we're not going to talk about it this morning. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. We're going to start partway through verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The invocation, our Father in heaven. That is so rich. Just dwell on that for a second. In a general sense, God is the Father of all creation. That's why so many people, you hear them say this, we're all God's children. However, as you begin to work your way through the prayer, you will soon discover that the word Father here is used in a redemptive sense. It's more than that just He created us. There's a sense of a relationship that He has redeemed us and brought into a relationship with God and He becomes our Father Malachi does a wonderful job in pointing out the differences. He chastises Judah for not living in accordance with God's will, for not treating God as their father. In Malachi 2.10, it states this, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? I find it ironic as I listen to the news or podcasts. I find it ironic. The people who most pull that card, well, we're all God's children, you know. 
Live least in accordance with God's will. Live least in accordance with God's word. When Jesus uses the term Father, it is used in a reference to those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, followers of Jesus Christ. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, ma- flat, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the Old Testament, think of how many times we see the word Father used. Can you recall? It's not used very often. Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 63.16. When he's praying for the restoration of Israel, so it's an eschatological sense, we read this in verse 16 of Isaiah 63. For you are our Father, Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. The invitation here, the invitation as we begin to look at the Lord's Prayer, is for you and I to call the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all, Father. God is transcendent, which is defined as exceeding usual limits. The surpassing one, one who is beyond the limits of all possible experience and knowledge, beyond comprehension, that is our Father. He's compassionate. He's personal. He's not a tyrant or an ogre, but He invites you and I to call Him Father. Jesus follows up this simple invocation with the first set of petitions. And each of these petitions references God. The first one, hallowed be your name. That could easily be translated, may your name be kept holy or let your name be holy. See, God is not your chum or buddy. And churches that approach worship in this manner where God's your chum and you're wonderful and he's your buddy you can go to, they do a huge disservice to their churches and to their congregations. Approaching God in that manner is unscriptural. Think of Isaiah. When Isaiah had his vision, think of how he saw God and how he portrayed God to us. In Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 5, and if you want to turn there, you can, But Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, he has a vision. This is what he recalls. In the year that that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. With all the earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. 
and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That doesn't sound like a chum to me. That sounds like a God that rules the universe. I read a statement by William Hendrickson. William Hendrickson looks at this and he he transitions to what we're going to talk about next. And he says this, The Father's name will not be hallowed throughout the world unless His royal rule is acknowledged. That leads right into verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, verse 10 is obviously has some eschatological tones to it, it, but it lives in tension. That tension of here, but not yet. See, Jesus coming as a child, to which we'll celebrate in a few months, and entering into this world in the beginning of his preaching ministry, that initiated the beginning of what we call his kingdom. That's all based on the work that happened on the cross, that atoning work. His work made it possible for you and for I to enter into a relationship with God, to be reconciled through the cross, brought into that right relationship. So when a person comes to God through Christ by faith, then the Holy Spirit resides within them. True faith gives way to allowing the Spirit to rule in our hearts. That is why we say God rules within us. But the kingdom is also a physical kingdom. And and that physical kingdom is promised to come. It's not in our scope this morning to deal with all that. But I want to read from Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 for you. And in the day... In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. See, Daniel looks in the end times. He's saying this is a physical kingdom. And one day God will establish a physical kingdom. But in the in-between time, he rules through the hearts of his citizens, the citizens of his kingdom, those who have come to faith. That's why we say the kingdom is here, but not yet. There's a tension. The example prayer here reminds you and I that we should also be praying for the expansion of that kingdom. See, with with God ruling in our hearts, we have a deposit of what is to come. And with the understanding of that deposit of what is to come, we should be seeking to see those around us come to faith in Jesus Christ. See, earnest prayer is both for the culmination of the kingdom, the ushering in of that final kingdom. But knowing that consummation, knowing that that final kingdom is coming, and one day will be established, it should make our lives missional. We should be missional in our living. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. 
is your heart's desire to see friends, family, co-workers, neighbors accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior too? You're praying for the kingdom to come. You know the kingdom rules in hearts already. We want to see the physical kingdom established on the earth. We want to see it expand. But do you live missionally? Are you looking out there and saying, okay, I have some relatives or some neighbors that I need to get busy with sharing Jesus Christ so that they can join in, this, in His kingdom? There's tension there. And that leads us right into another tension. Scripture can be full of different little tensions we have to hold. God is sovereign. Can anything thwart his will? Yet, we are asked to pray that his will be done. Can our will override his will? But we're asked to pray that his will be done. Is there a contradiction there? For some, they say, yeah, there there seems to be a contradiction there. But to our sovereign Lord, God holds this tension in perfect harmony. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this. So when you think of these things that are in tension, remember this verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Now, I've met many people who I would call determinists. That's how I would classify them. They would say things like, why pray? God's will is going to be done no matter what, so why pray? And it is easy to fall into this unmotivating, fatalistic attitude Their prayers are now done more out of duty. Well, I pray because God said I had to, but God hasn't determined it all anyhow. I only pray because I'm commanded to. My question is, how do we square that thinking with what Luke teaches in chapter 18? In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it's a bit of a read but I'm going to go through it all. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continually coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and I will and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you. He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? John MacArthur, I think, states it best. God is sovereign, but he's not independently deterministic. 
Looking at God's sovereignty in a fatalistic way, thinking what will be will be, absolutely destroys faithful prayer and faithful obedience in every sort. That is not a high view of God's sovereignty, but a destructive and unbiblical view of it. That is not the divine sovereignty the Bible teaches. There's a tension there, and we have to live with it. God is sovereign, but we are asked to come to Him in prayer. We're asked to seek that His will will be done. But there's another extreme to be cautioned against, too. That other extreme is that God is not some sort of jolly Santa Claus figure in the sky to be treated as some wish-granting vending machine. Somehow we have to hold the middle ground there. What is His will? It's another question that comes up as we pray the Lord's Prayer. What is God's will? What it is not, it is not some mystical thing you need to discover. I'm going to repeat that. What it is not, it's not some mystical thing you need to discover. Though often the question is asked, what's God's will for my life? We ask it in a way like there's one path to go down. And if I make a wrong decision on that path, I'm toast for the rest of my life. I've blown it. I'm out of God's will. I've missed the marker somehow. Well, that's not biblical. And that's not to say we don't seek God's guidance as we live our life. We certainly do. And I believe that with all my heart. God says in, in James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But what's God's will for your life? His will is for you to live in accordance with his word. Remember all those moral commands? Loving God with your whole heart, loving your neighbor, giving to those that are in need. That's God's will for you to live in accordance with His revealed will. Knowing His revealed will and asking for wisdom, that allows you to make decisions in your life. So you first know, what is God's revealed will? How am I to live? What am I to to do? It's not a secret. He's given it to us. Then we ask for guidance. We ask Him to guide and we ask Him for wisdom. And from there, we make wise decisions, taking into account your personality and your giftings. Here's what I mean by that. If I was to go off and to be a worship leader somewhere, I'm not convinced that that is God's will for my life. Why? Well, to quote an old saying, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. I'm more of a make a joyful noise unto the Lord kind of guy. Be who God wants you to be according to the Scripture, and He'll guide you. Take into consideration how He's gifted you, what you like to do, what what energizes you, and then go to the Scripture. Find out what His revealed will is. Pray for wisdom. It's not mystical. Make decisions based off of that. And I believe God will open and shut doors accordingly for you. Jesus then turns his attention to 
our petitions that do deal with us. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the prayer is one that is more like one day at a time. Give us day after day the bread we need. Martin Luther interpreted the verse to refer to all that we needed in the physical realm. So you have to remember, first century Israel, workers were paid daily. And oftentimes, workers would work for more than one person during a week, sometimes four or five different people. And each day they would receive their pay. They never knew in the course of a week where the work was coming from or how they would feed themselves. Missing a day or two because of illness or lack of work, well, that could spell financial ruin for them. When you live hand to mouth, then you begin to understand this prayer and appreciate it. Living day to day is not really relatable to most Canadians. I'm not saying they're not out there. I've worked with them. But for the vast majority of Canadians, it's not true. D.A. Carson stated in his commentary in Matthew this, It is a lesson easily forgotten when wealth multiplies and absolute self-sufficiency is portrayed as a virtue. A few weeks ago, we had Thanksgiving, and we celebrated it. How many of us really took the time to go and stop, thank the Lord, and ask, how did we get what we have? Where does that food come from? Was it from my own hard work? I mean, we have such abundance. Where did your health come so you could enjoy that which you've earned? What about your ability to work physically or the talents you have using your brain to do whatever? Who gave you those? We need to ponder and stop. It's too easy to be self-reliant and to forget that our daily subsistence, whether it's hand-to-mouth, day-by-day, or whether we receive an abundance to which we're going to be called an account to how we've used that, all comes from God. So for first century Israel, many of them were day-to-day, and they were thankful, and they were asking the Lord, provide for me this day. James 1, 16 and 17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our prayer should always ask God to meet our daily needs. And I believe we should be thankful for his provision and for his abundance. There's no guarantee in Canada that the Canada you and I grew up in is going to be the Canada that we pass along to our children or grandchildren. So we watched the food prices go out of control. As I talk to friends who still deal with people on the street, there are many now that are again living hand to mouth, sometimes not knowing where the meal's coming from the next day. The prayer moves from our physical needs 
to our spiritual needs in verse 12. And we'll deal with Jesus' commentary on verse 12. So we're going to deal with verse 12 and verses 14 and 15, which actually stand out outside the prayer. But let me read them to you, starting in verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you, have, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow. Forgiving, forgiving is hard, isn't it? To forgive someone is difficult. For some people, grudges seem to be a pastime hobby, like gardening or woodworking. We talk about forgiveness here. We're not talking about judicial forgiveness. We're not talking about salvation. Acts 10.43 says this, to him, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness for sins through his name. So we're not talking about salvation. Charles, Charles Swindle once said this, if we withhold forgiveness, grace, and mercy from people in our horizontal relationships, God will withhold the same in our vertical relationship with him. This isn't about our eternal salvation and right standing with God before the court of heaven. It refers to our day-to-day fellowship and communion with God. So once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our sin against a holy God, the injustices that others have committed or commit against us don't seem so big in comparison. When we begin to understand God's holiness and who He is and how we stand in front of Him, then things that happen to us don't seem like such a big deal. But it's understanding how holy He is and understanding how sinful we are and how much has been forgiven. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35, Jesus tells a story. It's a parable, and it goes something like this. There's this gentleman that owes the king millions and millions of dollars. The king comes across him and decides he's going to throw him in prison. He's had enough. The servant of the king begs for mercy. I, I can't pay this. Please spare me, king. Spare my family. The king has pity, as we learned a few weeks ago, means compassion. So the king has compassion on him. And he forgives them all that he owes them. The forgiven servant leaves feeling pretty good. But what's one of the first things that he does, if you're familiar with the parable? He goes and searches out another servant who owes him just a few thousand dollars. The fellow servant begins to beg for more time. And if you've never read the story, what is a few thousand dollars compared to the millions that this gentleman has had forgiven to him? You'd think he'd show a little kindness, you know, sort of pass it on to the next person, but that's not his response. 
Rather, he has the fellow servant tossed into the debtor's prison. Well, when the king found out, you can guess what happened next. See, when you and I live with an unforgiving spirit, whatever the offense, when we live with a grudge, we live in hypocrisy. When grudges are held, we are hypocrites. And if that word stings, it should. If you want to move forward spiritually, if you want to move forward as a family or corporately as a church, hypocrisy must be rooted out and forgiveness must be granted. It's that simple. Perhaps what was done to you hurt. You may even believe that it was done to you purposely. Someone was out to get you. I've learned a few things in my time of working in churches and ministry. And for people who hold grudges, you likely think about it a whole lot more than they do. Often the offending party has no idea that they offended you or sinned against you. If even if they did it on purpose, even if that person never says they're sorry, it still doesn't matter. You are to forgive them. God's standard is our standard forgiveness. When we're yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. In your relationship with God, do you find it a little stale? Perhaps you need a little forgiveness by forgiving others. Pettiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Let's rewind to verse 13. Matthew 6, 13 says this, And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, the final petition is for protection. I've often said this from this pulpit, that Scripture must agree. So when we think of verse 13, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, we also need to take into context James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, why pray for something God will never do? Because God's never going to tempt you. See, the answer lay in understanding the word temptation. See, the Greek original, it denotes the idea of a trial or a testing. I think the New English translation has a great footnote on this to try to pull it together. The request, do not lead us in temptation, is not to suggest God causes temptation, but it's a rhetorical way of asking for his protection from sin. Temptation could read, or into, the, into a time of testing. Some interpreters see this specific request to avoid a time of testing that might lead to a crisis of faith. But occurring as it does towards the end of the prayer, a more general request for protection from sin seems more likely. MacArthur presents a view from an early church father, John Christism, he says this, the early church father, Jesus here is not speaking of logic or theology, but of a heart's desire and inclination that causes a believer to want to avoid the danger and trouble sin creates. It is the expression of the redeemed soul 
that so despises and fears sin that it wants to escape all prospects of falling into it, choosing to avoid rather than having to defeat temptation. I think the point is clear. The call for us and then this prayer is to ask for God's protection that we don't fall into sin. See, our our salvation is secure. God holds into our salvation. But when we err, when we slip up, forgiveness brings us back into that proper fellowship with God. It's always available to us. The Lord's Prayer. What a wonderful opportunity that you and I have to go to God into prayer, to go to the Father knowing He will hear us and that He is always near, knowing that our prayers make a difference, knowing that God wants to hear from us. Now, I cannot explain to you exactly how prayer works, but I can tell you, God invites us to pray. I can tell you God delights in our prayers. I can tell you that according to Scripture, it makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of those that we pray for. What a privilege to commune with the creator of the universe, with the sovereign of the universe. What a privilege to understand that we serve a God that is compassionate, We serve a God that takes an interest in us. We serve a God that has set his, has said his loving kindness on us. And it's to this God that you and I are invited to pray. To go with our requests, to go with our adoration, and he will hear us. This should drive us to our knees in worship first. What a privilege. I mean, we often think, oh, it'd be cool to meet, you know, the prime minister or the premier or the president. You're being invited into the throne room of the creator of the universe. We need not take that so lightly. We need to understand that the one who created everything asks us to come and commune with him. Is there anything more awesome than that? Having God invite you in and say, come, spend time with me. Come pray with me. I can't think of anything more awesome than spending time with a father who cares. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can enter your throne room through prayer. There is nothing more awesome than being able to go before a God that is sovereign, that set in course the foundation of this world, that set in course history, that is the God that has raised up kings and brought down kings. And we were invited to talk to you. Thank you for your word and thank you for the invitation to come and to speak with you.
May our hearts be overflowed with joy, with gratitude, and with humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.